compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Well, let's see. This is hour three of the program. We only have three hours together, and as you can see, they go by quickly. So if you're interested in being on the air, if you have a question, you need a second opinion maybe, you want to argue with me, that's cool. That's fine, too. I'm happy to do that as well. Whatever you want to talk about, within reason anyway, call me at 888-914-9149. I'm here for you, and I'd love to hear from you. 888-914-9149. Let's start off with Sam in Maple Lake, Minnesota. Hi, Sam. Hi. Yes, sir. So, my, there's things to be, like, um, like controversial between laying up hands within the church, between the charismatic and maybe the more traditional aspects mm-hmm. of the church. Do, does the church teach anything on the laying of hands as far as just intercessory prayer? And then what is your opinion on it? Yes, I can maybe summarize it this way, Sam, that in a liturgical context, so we're talking here about Mass, for example, or celebration of the sacraments, liturgically and sacramentally, the laying on of hands has a particular meaning as it pertains to the sacrament of holy orders. So, for example, the bishop laying his hands on the the head of the man to be ordained a priest, as an example. Or the the laying on of hands for a bishop or a priest who's delegated the authority to confer the sacrament of confirmation. These would be two examples. So in those settings, it is inappropriate, and it would be inappropriate and even confusing for lay people to somehow participate in that because they can't participate in that. I'm a layman, by the way. So I can't, even if I were to lay my hand on somebody there is no sacramental conferral of grace or, or anything like that. So that would be the first category I would propose to you. The second category would be in a prayer setting through the doorway of the charismatic renewal in the last 50 years or so, there has come into the church the phenomenon of lay people putting their hands, laying their hands on another person as a gesture of prayer. Now, this is not something that the church has a teaching on per se in terms of that kind of laying on of hands. It's a it's a novel activity, novel in the, in the larger sense of the church's history. It's not traditional. It is of recent origin, at least you know, in the sense of the charismatic renewal is concerned. And so, some people do it. Most people do not. And. That's about what I can tell you, is that it's kind of a a new thing that some people do, and they're doing it, hopefully at least, as a way of trying to demonstrate solidarity with the person, prayers for the person, that kind of thing. But the Church doesn't have like a dogmatic or doctrinal teaching on that issue. Does that make sense, Sam? Yes. Does that help, or was there more to it? Um, I guess that helped. I mean, I think I knew that circumstances already. Um, okay. But it seems that uh, maybe like some people who are in authority of like exorcisms and such are like prayers of healing laying on hands. That seems to be the controversial um, portion of it. And I just wanted if you had maybe mm-hmm. an opinion on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So the the first part of what I talked about in a, uh, in a uh, what's the word I use there, in a um, liturgical setting, 
So even the prayers of exorcism would fall into that general category. They're not a liturgy per se, like the Mass, for example. But it is a situation in which the priest who is performing an exorcism, he has not just the authority to do so, but in some aspects of the of the ritual for exorcism, he you know, it's prescribed that he would put his hand on the forehead of the person who's possessed, etc. Lay people have no such authority. Lay people can't perform exorcisms. Yeah, we can pray prayers of deliverance. Of course, the St. Michael the Archangel prayer comes to mind. That's a great prayer. We can pray prayers of deliverance for ourselves and for others, but we can't perform exorcisms. We can't command the evil one the way a priest exorcist can. So it's important that we not blur those lines and not for some someone to imagine that he has that authority if he's a layman, which he does not have. So you mentioned exorcism as an example of that. Now, I've read, I've never been to one, but I've read that sometimes because the person is convulsing or flying around the room or doing things like that, that sometimes somebody or maybe several people will hold the person down to avoid injury, for example. But that's different. That's not laying on of hands in any kind of liturgical or ritual way. Um, Personally, if you're asking for my own opinion, and that's all I can give you on this issue, I don't like it when people come up to me and say, we'd like to pray over you, and they put their hands on my head or my shoulders. I understand their good intention, and I appreciate it, and I understand that they're trying to to show some um, prayer help. I appreciate it, but I don't like it. I don't want people putting their hands on me. I wouldn't presume to come up and put my hands on you. Um, so the, that's a matter of propriety, it seems to me, and not everybody understands that. <laughs> I think some people think, well, if it's in a prayer setting, I get to put my hands on your body. No, you don't. So that's my own personal proclivity when it comes to that issue. Anything more on that, Sam? Yeah, so you don't think there's any extra power in putting your hand on someone's brain? No, them? no, I don't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad I could help in that way. Thank you, Sam. 888-914-9149. And by the way, that was in answer to Sam's question referring to lay people. Different thing. Now, moms and dads, if you're going to bless your children, you put your hands on their heads and you bless your children. That's totally different. And you have standing because you're the mother, you're the father, or you're the grandmother, you're the grandfather. You have that kind of standing. And it would be appropriate if you were to bless your children and maybe put your hands on their head or make the sign of the cross, that's different. That's something different from you're just in a prayer meeting and so-and-so decides to put their hands on you. If they ask, that's different, I guess, and you can say yes to it, but it just doesn't seem smart or helpful for people to presume that they can do that. So those are my thoughts. 888-914-9149. How about Chris now in Chandler, Arizona? Good morning, Chris. Welcome. Hi, Patrick. Yes, um, I was wondering if you can help clarify some things that that I'm starting to get a little, I don't know, perplexed or confused over. Um, For example, the... uh, uh, the, the, the same-sex blessings um, and the Pope giving the African bishops a pass on this, this bifurcated kind of ruling, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't follow that. 
that okay are you wondering about how his recent comments said that the the african bishops are a, a special case or a separate issue is that what you're referring to exactly and where he says it's more of a cultural thing which i don't understand how he could go down that road i mean is it not a cultural thing here in the united states or elsewhere where Actually, you know, people are divided in the culture over this, but obviously the waiting in Africa is, is a lot greater. Uh, mm-hmm. to, yeah, I understand you know, your point. Back on that. Well, I, I can't, I can't speak for the Pope. I'm, I'm not going to try to interpret that or, or try to explain it away or anything. Uh, the Pope has to take responsibility for his own words. I mean, I have to take responsibility for my words. So if I say something publicly. I own it, and I have to explain it, or I have to clarify it, or I have to, you know, maybe I I would have to say, oh, you know what, I misspoke, I'm sorry, and then retract it. And the same is true for him. He's the Bishop of Rome, and, and so I can't interpret or explain what he said. I just have to say, well, that's what he said. So if he doesn't desire to clarify it further, and he says that well, the African reaction, the African bishops, by and large, reacted negatively to fiducia supplicans, and I'm just going to treat that as a separate issue. But everyone else, you know, hey, you, sure, that presents a question like, well, why do some people not have to pay attention to it and other people do? That question arises. But ultimately, it's up to him to clarify his teachings and statements. Otherwise, people will wonder. But it's not for me to try to clarify. Who's in charge ultimately when it comes to our understanding of the faith? When they break, they have authority over us when it comes to dogma, doctrine, and liturgy. And you know, sometimes it's it's the Pope, maybe to some degree with his encyclicals or papal bulls, or you, you have the Office of the Doctrine of the Faith, or you have the Magisterium. I'm trying to, it seems to be confusing lately, you know, some of the authority that's coming out of the office of the the doctrine of the faith. And I just, where is the magisterium in all this? Well, the magisterium, let's stipulate what that is. First of all, the magisterium is the teaching office of the church that is comprised of the Pope and all the bishops of the Catholic church who are in communion with the Pope. That's the magisterium. I am not a member of the magisterium. Father McGillicuddy at St. Miscellaneous Parish is not a member of the Magisterium. So as defined by the Church itself, that's the teaching office of the Church. Now, there are different forward-facing or publicly discernible um, examples of the Magisterium, and that would be primarily either a, a, a dogmatic definition, a promulgation, for example, of a dogma by a Pope, and that's rare in the life of the Church, um, or more commonly, far more commonly, would be the exercise of magisterium in the form of a, an ecumenical council. And even those are not terribly common, but that would be a more common example. And then when the Pope and or bishops teach the, the age-old teaching of the Church, they reiterate the gospel, they restate the gospel, they advance the gospel. Those would be examples of the magisterium. And in the case of what once was the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, it recently underwent a change, so it's now a dicastery. But whatever, the same entity still exists. That has a formal role in in advancing the Church's clarification of questions that come up. 
it also acts as a, or is it's supposed to act as a governor in the case of something where somebody goes haywire and is teaching something that is not true. Well, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was at least the mechanism that the church would employ to deal with something like that, some kind of aberration. Now, current circumstances are not the way they once were. And so my advice to you, Chris, if I'm, I'm kind of intuiting that maybe the question beneath your other questions is, who do I trust? What do I believe? Where do I look for the teachings of the church? Am I, am I guessing correctly that's part of your question? That's, you're, 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 you're right on target there because I'm starting to get confused as far as like who has ultimate authority in teaching. Um, and there's just a lot of confusion going on and it's just, um, I don't know what to think at times. I understand. Well, I would, I would say this, first of all, according to the definition that Jesus himself gives in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19, he says to the 12 apostles, Go into the whole world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that's where the term magisterium arises, there and elsewhere, because magister is a one of the Latin words for teacher. So the term magisterium is the teaching office. And there we see Jesus in Matthew uh, 28, 20, specifically saying, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So that teaching office of the church, once again, is the Pope and all the bishops of the Catholic Church in union with the Pope. So just keep that in the focus of your mind. Now, there are people, so let's take individual bishops who might say anything. That doesn't mean, I think part of maybe your question is, what about the infallibility of the church? to not lead us into error. Well, an individual bishop certainly is not immune from that. Popes are immune from it when they're preaching or when they're teaching uh, formally to the church on a matter of faith and morals, and they're intending to teach in that capacity and teach the whole church, etc. So th- these parameters are spelled out in a document called Pastor Eternus. That means eternal shepherd, and that's from Vatican Council One which met in Rome in 1870. So you can see how the Church specifically says when a pope is exercising in an extraordinary way, for example, his teaching authority, when he's exercising in an ordinary way, the charism of papal infallibility. Um, These are important aspects. But for the current time, and any other time in the life of the Church where things do seem confusing, number one, Jesus Christ and the Gospels. You know what Jesus said, you know what the Gospels say. Number two, the age-old teaching of the Church, the definitions of the councils, the um, expressions of conciliar statements such as the the Catechism of the Council of Trent, as an example from 500 years ago, the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church more currently. Um, Those would be, you might say, the monuments of the teaching, the objective data of the teaching of the magisterium coming from Jesus Christ and the apostles under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit. So if you have those things fixed in your mind and you see them and you know them, in a way it almost doesn't matter what some bishop might pop up and say, or those things have happened countless times in the life of the church, but it's the, the deposit of faith that self that doesn't change. 
Uh, I'll have to leave it at that. I feel like I've bumped into a break, and so I have. So, Chris, I hope that's helpful to you. I'm glad you called, and I'm glad you're listening. And I'll get right back with more of the phone calls. The number to call is 888-914-9149. That number is sponsored by Catholic Order Foresters. 888-914-9149. If you have real estate or land you no longer need, consider the advantages of donating it to Relevant Radio. The process is easy and the tax advantages can be huge. Learn more at relevantradio.com property. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. This is The Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio and RelevantRadio.com. Oh, good vibes with this music, that's for sure. 888-914-9149. Let's go now to Kate in Milwaukee. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Patrick. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to. I was hoping to, I was hoping to get your opinion on something. So in all my years of attending Mass, I've only heard one priest state that missing Sunday Mass was a mortal sin. Mm. And I've found that many Catholics don't know this. And recently we were having dinner with some friends, and they had just come from Mass, and the husband said to me, did you know that missing Sunday Mass is a mortal sin? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I think that's a mistake for the priest to tell people that because it's just going to keep people away from Mass. And, you know, less people are going to be Catholic. And while I thought there was some validity to the statement, I said, well, I love the Lord and I want to do as well. So I'm glad to know that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm also a catechist for confirmation. And we were going over the mass about a month ago, and I only had half the class there. But I did mention that it was a mortal sin. And only one out of the six kids that were there knew that fact. Mm-hmm. So it's not a well-publicized thing. But I've had other people that have said to me, I don't think you should really mention this. I don't think you should you know, talk about it because of that, that it's just going to force people away from the church. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Okay. You could probably guess that I'm rolling my eyes as you're telling me that. <laughs> Because it's a lame argument, as you know. I mean, it would be similar to saying, well, I mean, why should dentists be telling their patients to brush their teeth every day, for heaven's sake? That's just going to drive people away from, you know, from brushing their teeth. I mean, if you tell them they have to do it, they probably won't. And if the dentist says, well, you're going to get gingivitis and you're going to have bad breath and you're going to have gunk in your teeth and your teeth will fall out, that's just driving people away. It's just a silly argument. Um, or the idea of if doctors would just stop telling people to watch their exercise and diet and, you know, don't eat things that are bad for your body, that's just going to drive people away from good health. Obviously, no, it doesn't do that. Um, it's it's a way to help a family do family things together. And so for these people, if they have children, it would be like, would you just say to your kids, Hey guys, you know, you can eat whenever you want. You can eat in your room, you can eat in front of the TV in the living room. 
or would you rather say we're going to have dinner as a family and everybody will be here at the table at 6 p.m. We're going to have family time. It's going to be a good thing. Of course it's going to be a good thing. And it would be better for a family, especially when there are children involved, to eat their meal together, if possible. Now, sometimes it's not possible. But to say to the kids, you know, just run wild and do whatever you want and eat whenever you want, that's clearly going to be less beneficial to the kids and to the family than if the family had a rule, which is family dinners at 6 p.m. Or for those who like to eat earlier, 5 p.m., you know, whatever the time may be. Um, it's just mm-hmm. common sense tells us that these kinds of things are good and helpful and for people to just ignore this requirement, um, even if they didn't know about it before, once they do, they ignore it at their own risk. Because if you can't even give God an hour a week, how on earth would anybody be able to say, well, I'm really a follower of Jesus, if they can't even muster the wherewithal to spend one hour with Jesus in the Mass per week, the idea of them being strong in the faith and praying and receiving the sacraments almost certainly would not take place, seems to me. So I would just point things out like that, and and I would say, you, you may not like it and you may not agree with it, but you can't deny the fact that the Church teaches it. I'll give you an example. So in the Catechism it says in paragraph 2181, The Sunday Eucharist is the foundation and confirmation of all Christian practice. For this reason, the faithful are obliged to participate in the Eucharist on days of obligation unless excused for serious reason. For example, illness, the care of infants, or if dispensed by their own pastor. Those who deliberately fail in this obligation commit a grave sin. And that's true. And you're right, Kate, to point that out in a loving way, of course. And if they don't want to abide by the laws of the church, and they don't want to spend even one hour with Jesus a week, then you can say, well, then can you really call yourself a Christian? Can you really call yourself a follower of Jesus? Can you really call yourself a Catholic if, well, those rules apply to other people, but they don't apply to me? I would ask questions like that and see what they say. Yeah, that's great. Why do you think more priests don't ever talk about it at Mass? You know, I I don't know if I have an answer only because I don't know what most priests are saying. I've had the opportunity, for what it's worth, for 35, 36 years, I traveled relentlessly doing public speaking at parishes and conferences and universities and things. So I did have a an opportunity to witness parish life all across the country for many years. And it's true, I very rarely, if ever, heard a priest preaching about Sunday obligation. And why that is, I don't know. I suspect mainly because I think most Catholics know that they have to go to Mass on Sunday. And for those who don't know, you know, if you're at Mass on Sunday, (laughs) it's the very people who aren't at Mass on Sunday who need to hear a sermon about it, not the people who are at Mass on Sunday. So maybe it's along those lines. Um, It would be good to post it in the bulletin or put it on the parish website reminders, Mass on Sunday is an obligation unless you have some extenuating circumstance. Not like a soccer game for your kids on Sunday morning. That's not an extenuating circumstance. But if you're sick or aged or there's a blizzard or a sick baby, then you don't have the obligation. But if you can, and, and I know you know these things, Kate, but for those listening, 
if you have the ability to go to Mass on Sunday, but you just blow it off, well, that that is a serious sin, because the Church has a right to say, we're all going to gather for our family meal on Sunday. You can go on Saturday night if Sunday's impossible as the Vigil Mass, but this is a rule that we have, and everyone's expected to be there. Ask your, ask your whoever the people are you're talking to, do you think that would fly in your corporate job if if the the president of the company or your supervisor said we're having a meeting today at 2 p.m. you have to be there do you think it would be okay with them if you just said nah nah not me i'm not going to be there how long would they keep yeah. their job probably not very long right and i did say that with these confirmation kids you know would that work with one of your coaches if you told them you know, mm-hmm. you wanted to sleep in or <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> whatever the case is. Yeah, if you don't want to come to practice, well, don't expect to play. You know, if right. you want to get out there and play, come to practice. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It does. Thank you for your opinion. Yeah. Oh, you're um, welcome. You I'm with you, Kate. One other quick question. If we can do it quickly, sure. Okay. Some friends of ours that we've known for a long time, their daughter is getting married in a brewery. And it's not going to be through a minister and certainly, you know, not a Catholic priest. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, is that something we can attend? Well, she's a Catholic. Is that right? Well, uh, quasi, I guess. Not so she was raised Catholic, Catholic, but doesn't really practice anymore? Correct. Yeah. Well, I know different people will give different answers, and, and I know that there are some who will say, sure, go ahead, you know, let them know that this is wrong and they, they shouldn't do it, but go anyway to keep family relationships intact. And I, I personally don't hold that view. Um, first thing is, and this is for people listening, you may know this, Kate, but some people don't. Catholics are obliged to get married in the church and as a official witness of the marriage, it, it has to be officially witnessed by a bishop, priest, or deacon who would also bless the marriage. Now, dispensation can be granted by the bishop, but it must be sought, number one. And so if she's getting married at the brewery, a brewery, for heaven's sakes, why would you get married at a brewery? But in any case, if, if she's going to get married there, she could ask her bishop, can I get a dispensation? And he might say yes. He might say, why would you want to do that? But let's say the bishop said yes. He would say, well, then let's be sure Father McGillicuddy is there to witness the marriage and bless the marriage. And if she says no, or if she doesn't bother to inquire with the bishop, if she can be dispensed from these forms, the canonical form, then it's an invalid marriage. So to your question then, I wouldn't go, as painful, as sad as that might be, I wouldn't go. And if it's of any help, I use the analogy of St. John the Baptist as an example. And I'm sure you know the story, but just to rehearse it, he was thrown in prison by Herod because he was publicly denouncing denouncing Herod's invalid marriage. The whole thing had to do with an invalid marriage because he was marrying, quote-unquote, his brother's wife. And John the Baptist spoke up about that. And he says, you know, time out, Herod, time out. That's not a valid marriage. You're doing something evil here. And so Herod had him thrown in jail. Now, I always use this example when I think about this or talk about this. Can you imagine, Kate, if Herod goes down into the dungeon and says to St. John the Baptist, who's in chains, 
and says to him, look, I know that you think this is wrong, and I know that for your religious sensibilities, you think this is an invalid marriage. I understand all that. But just for the sake of family togetherness and keeping the lines of communication open, John, could you just come to the reception? I'm not going to ask you to make a toast. In fact, there's going to be some great food there. You can have some wedding cake, some champagne. It's going to be great. I know where you stand on this. You don't have to say anything. Could you just come and be there? And so my rhetorical question is, what do you think John the Baptist would say? No. And I'm convinced <laughs> he would not go to the reception. Right. And I can't get around that. For me, it's an it's an immovable object. I can't rationalize saying, well, I'll go anyway just to keep family communication open or not to offend anybody. I have, personally, I'd have to take the John the Baptist option and say, of course I can't go. Of right. course I can't go. Because then it would be denying everything that you and I both know is true, and I can't do that. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your opinions on those things. Oh, you're welcome, Kate. Nice talking with you, and I hope you don't have to deal with that heartache. I know many people do, but I hope it's not part of your world. Okay, let's move on now to Marie in Dubuque, Iowa. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Patrick. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I found an article in the paper on Saturday. It's from the Associated Press that Paul McCartney's stolen bass guitar from over 50 years ago was finally returned to him. I saw that. Did you read about this? Oh, boy, did I ever. I think it came out, was it Friday or Saturday, one of the two? Yes, Saturday. yeah, I was really happy for him, of course, because he's he turns 82 in, in uh, June. And I think it was stolen in 1971 or 70, so it's been gone a long time. Yeah. And he yeah, finally got 70, it back. I That's think really 72 neat. is when they said they thought it disappeared mm. um, out of the back end of a, of a van of yeah. some sound engineer that it got stolen from out of the van and... Um, and the guy who stole it didn't set out to steal it, but and then when he realized what he had, he panicked, mm-hmm. and he just kind of got, you know, he, I guess, uh, had a few beers and and he uh, sold it for a few beers and a couple of pounds for, uh, mm-hmm. to the landlord of a pub, yeah. and then so it stayed with the pub family for a while, and it was up in their attic. Mm-hmm. I know the story. And, yeah, and it's just like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And then it, it took about two months for them to authenticate it, but it's such a cool-looking bass. Mm-hmm. It looks like a violin. Did you see the picture of it? Oh, I am so deeply in this world, Marie. I own an exact replica of that bass. I've owned it for years. Uh, really? It's a Hofner, yeah, Hoffner Beetle yeah, bass. Hoffner so. Electric. Mm-hmm. I am about as deep in that world as you can imagine for a long wow. time. Yeah, It's a beautiful looking um, instrument. Sure is, yeah. And for, you know, he bought it for what, $37? Something like that. I think it was in pounds though, but yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, or $37 in our money. but And then it's supposed to be worth over 12, $12.6 million now. Sounds about right. <laughs> Which is amazing. I just I just couldn't get over it. And I just thought, when I read this, I just, I thought of you and I just like, oh, I got to tell Patrick, you know? It was just like, oh. 
No, I'm glad you did, Marie. There's a picture of him playing it. Like when oh, he was, their you know, videos Ed galore. Sullivan. Oh, videos galore. Yeah, that was the bass back in the early days. This is actually Paul McCartney playing bass, but I think he's playing a Rickenbacker 4001, if I'm not mistaken. Post Beatles. Well, Marie, you hit the sweet spot with that one. It's a topic I very much enjoy. Thank you. Thanks for thinking of me. I'll be right back. Today, we'd like to thank Tammy, who's listening in Florida, for donating her 2016 BMW Z4. Cool. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Okay, so this is a little bit of Beatles. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show. We had a call a minute ago. A lady so kind and thoughtful wondered if I had heard the news that um, Paul McCartney's bass was recovered after more than 50 years of after having been stolen. It was in, in limbo, and he finally got it back, just like in the last few days. So if you listen closely, you'll hear Paul McCartney playing that bass. Listen. Okay, there it is. So, yeah, good stuff. 888-914-9149. How about... Lupe now in Baltimore. Good morning, Lupe. Yeah, good morning. Can you hear me okay? I can, mm-hmm. yes. Okay, thank you. Um, a, a quick question, I think. I am aware of a church near us that there's a strong rumor was desecrated. I don't have any influence or connections to the church. Okay. but um, and, I, and I know that it was reported. I don't know that anything was done. Is it okay for me to take my grandchildren there? It's very pretty. It's the kind of church you would want to go to. But there was, a, if this story is true, I suspect it is true. It was a terrible desecration. And if it happened, is the church still a, a good, safe place for family to worship? Okay. Well, if a desecration takes place, and that could be, let's say, somebody's murdered in a Catholic church, or some terrible mm-hmm. evil is perpetrated in a Catholic church, um, the church would be deconsecrated thereby, and could mm-hmm. not be used again for Mass until the bishop, or at least a bishop, but usually it would be the bishop of that diocese, were to formally reconsecrate the church. So there's, in the church's law, provision for this. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. But if it should happen, then at the very least, no, there should not be Mass celebrated there until the bishop has done this. Now, in the meantime, I, I mean, it's not like if you go into that church to show your children that a devil is going to jump on you or something like that, but it's not supposed to be used for liturgical purposes or really any other purpose until it's been reconsecrated. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, if this was indeed a notorious, publicly known desecration of the Church, you can be certain that the bishop of that diocese will have taken steps to, you know, to have the Church cleansed and then to re-consecrate it. So that that's not something that would would pass muster if it if it was known that this happened and then the bishop did nothing about it that's not going to happen the bishop's definitely going to do that. Okay, if it if the um 
if the reconsecration happened, would it necessarily have been public? Yes, it would be. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, the so people I of be God would know. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the bishop would make sure that the people of God knew, first of all, what had happened and why this was being reconsecrated. Now, there's certain terminology the church uses. We're speaking more of an, in a vernacular way here. But yeah, that would be publicized. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Let's go to Daniel now in Rosemont, Minnesota. Hi, Daniel. Hey, good morning, Patrick. Good morning. So I'm What's reading on a really mind? interesting book. Um, I'm reading a really interesting book about the production of nuclear weapons, and it just got me wondering about the morality of such things. I think the church is pretty clear about the use of nuclear weapons is frowned upon, but certainly the motivation to accumulate them as opposed to potential adversaries who might be doing Mm -hmm. the same thing. I was just hoping you could help me expound upon that, the morality of such actions. I'll try. I mean, it's a big topic, and there are a lot of aspects of it to take into account. Let's begin with what the Catechism says. Let's look at paragraph 2314. Every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man, which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation. The danger of modern warfare is that it provides the opportunity to those who possess modern scientific weapons, especially atomic, biological, or chemical weapons, to commit such crimes. So, as a premise, the Church is saying here that to use these weapons, and here we're talking about atomic weapons or or hydrogen bombs, nuclear weapons, that that is, as it says, a crime against man and God, or God and man. So it would be a serious sin. The next paragraph says, the accumulation of arms strikes many as paradoxically suitable, a paradoxically suitable way of deterring potential adversaries from war. This would, and I'm going to pause here, this would be what's commonly called mutual assured destruction, where if the other side has got an arsenal of nuclear weapons and you have an arsenal of nuclear weapons, the theory goes that neither side would ever use them because of that mutual assured destruction, that your deterrent is the very fact that if they were to use them, you destroy them. And at least in theory, that has obtained. I mean, since... Since August of 1945, when we dropped the two atomic bombs, or the two nuclear bombs, I'm sorry, the atomic bombs on Japan, uh, that theory has sort of held out, I mean, amazingly. So continuing, the Catechism says, they see it as the most effective means of ensuring peace among nations. This method of deterrence gives rise to strong moral reservations. The arms race does not ensure peace. Far from eliminating the causes of war, it risks aggravating them. Spending enormous sums to produce ever new types of weapons impedes efforts to aid needy populations. It thwarts the development of peoples over armament, multiplies reasons for conflict, and increases the danger of escalation. So what I would propose here is that if you juxtapose these two paragraphs, in paragraph 2314, it's unequivocal and explicit in saying, the catechism that is, that this is a serious sin, and it calls it a crime against God and man. The second paragraph, the ensuing paragraph, does not use that kind of language. Rather, it says this this way of going about it strikes many as a suitable way, but it doesn't condemn that view. Uh, they see it as the most effective means, um, and yet this method of mutual assured destruction gives rise to strong moral reservations. So here it seems that the church is saying 
something different from what we see in paragraph 2314 regarding the use of nuclear or atomic weapons. Here, it's just expressing strong reservations. This is not a good idea. This is, this is going to lead to something worse. This is going to get out of hand. This is going to cause a danger of escalation. But it doesn't come out and say it's nonetheless immoral and should not be done. So I would take my cue, Daniel, from those two paragraphs just to see kind of the, the general stance that the church has on this issue. Definitely no to the first question about using them and strong reservations as to the second question about having them. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that really helped. That kind of helped kind of fill in the gaps between the language because I read the two paragraphs in the catechism beforehand and, and that, that uh, helps explain the difference between the two. So that, that, that helps very much. Okay. Well, you're welcome. And there's just huge amounts of literature that have been written. Pope John Paul II wrote widely on this issue. So there's so much more that one could say, but at least we have a little a little um, bit from the catechism to go on. Thanks for the call. Let's hope we never have to worry about that, shall we? Let's go to Marion now in Georgetown, Kentucky. Hi, Marion. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for taking my question. You're welcome. Sure. Um, it relates to um, Catechism 2290, which falls under the major section of the Fifth Commandment, Not to okay. Kill. Right. And there's a sentence in it which says that those who by drunkenness or love of speed put themselves or others at risk incur mm -hmm. grave guilt. Mm -hmm. And so in that sentence, by saying incur grave guilt, are they saying that it is a mortal sin to speed? Yes, that is what it's saying. And I have that paragraph of the Catechism in front of me. You read it verbatim. And it's interesting that you mention this because on uh, on this show, going back years ago now, probably five or six years ago at least, um, this question came up and I did an extended commentary on how speeding or driving recklessly is a mortal sin. And I used this passage, I, as I recall anyway, um, as part of the foundation of the point that I made. Now, we do have that, if you're interested, we do have that available on our YouTube channel. So uh, you, if you go to YouTube, type in Patrick Madrid Show, and you'll find okay. the video section, and then you can search within the videos. I forget what it was called, Is Speeding a Sin or something like that. But I did talk about it for, I don't know, five, six minutes, and it's there if you want to hear the whole thing. Okay, I'll check it out. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome, Marion. Thank you. And stay safe. Uh -huh. <laughs> Wear your seatbelt. Thank Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you. Uh, how about Bill now in Lafayette, California? Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Uh, Patrick, uh, the books of the Bible have been written and translated by many different people over the centuries, from mm -hmm. Aramaic to Greek to Italian to Latin to whatever the language is. Uh, yeah. And as any person who speaks more than one language knows, there's no exact translation oftentimes. And mm -hmm. even in our little Bible group, when we have different versions of the Bible, when someone is reading a passage, I notice my version is a little different. Mm -hmm. So uh, my question is, especially when people quote exact uh, quotations from the Bible, how can we be sure that we are reading the, the exact uh, intended word? Yeah, that's a great question. So... I would say, number one, we have readily available tools now, and even if somebody doesn't have any 
connection to or training with the biblical languages, they can still see what the biblical underlying language is saying. And one example would be the Blue Letter Bible. Are you familiar with that website? No, I'm not. Yeah, it's a great tool, blueletterbible.org. And if you go there and you type in any any verse, so let's say, um, let's take a look here. Um, in Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gives who gave a marriage feast for his son. Well, if you click on the verse, it opens up the morphological window, and it will give you each of the Greek words in order, and it will either decline the nouns and adjectives for you, or it will con- it'll show you the conjugated verb. And you can click on the Strong's Concordance number. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance is the the definition of the word, and it will show you all the other places in Scripture where that word appears. So you could say, all right, in this version of the Bible, this word is translated as son. Well, what is the original word here? So you can go in and look at the original word, and you see, ah, it is the Greek word for son, huios. So then you can say, well, is this word, is it translated differently in another version of Scripture or in another verse of Scripture? And it would give you all those examples, too. So you could sift through them and say, well, this word is always translated as son, or it's mostly translated as son. And that gets to your point, because as you know so well that if you speak more than one language, you know that things could be translated in a valid way, but could be translated differently, using different terms or different words. So that's one tool that's available to anybody who can read and has an internet connection. What do you think, Bill? Well, uh, I mean, thank, thank you for the tip. Uh, I mm-hmm. still am concerned that for for the first, uh, I don't know how many centuries, uh, the tradition was mostly oral. And so there's a lot of telling of stories. And in the telling of stories, things change. So right. that that's part uh, of my confusion. You're talking about manuscript evidence. Okay, now I see. Okay, so we have, we possess... We didn't. We do not possess the what are known as the autographs or the original parchment or vellum or what you know scroll. However, it was originally set down in terms of the New Testament books. We don't have those, but we do have very early manuscripts that are uh, copies of earlier manuscripts that are copies of earlier manuscripts that are copies of the originals. So there's a whole science of textual criti- textual criticism that scientifically looks at these various manuscripts and compares them to other bodies of manuscripts. So the Codex Vaticanus, for example, is one body or recension of manuscripts. And then the Codex uh, Sinaiticus is another one. And there are other ones, too. And so these scholars, they're able to look at these various manuscripts and compare and contrast them. And we also can do so in relation to the Church Fathers, who, although... The Church Father St. Augustine didn't have access to the original documents of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for example. He at least had access to and was reading from copies that were much closer to the writings in their original form. So one of the benefits that we have is, although we don't possess those as St. Augustine did in the 400s, let's say, we can compare the copies that we do have with what he quotes in Scripture— 
So he's making quotations from Scripture, and we can see how closely do they match up, and the answer is extremely closely. So that's part of this overall way of knowing that these manuscripts, number one, were not corrupted, their meaning didn't change, we're not reading something entirely different or largely different from what the originals were. There are ways you can scientifically demonstrate that. So those are some aspects of it. And I apologize, Bill, I've, I've reached the point where uh, I have to wrap the show up. But I hope that's helpful to you, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, can we quickly get Mike in Chicago on the air? Mike, can you say your question in 10 seconds? Yes. Uh, my question is, can IVF be considered an act of love? If a child is created out of IVF, can it be considered an act of out of an act of love? I would say it would be a, a grossly misguided act of love on the part of the parents who desire to have a child. That's an, a form of love but they're going about it in the wrong way, and it would be immoral to use IVF. So even though their motive might have some love component to it, it still would be the wrong thing to do. Uh, the ends do not justify the means in this case. Uh, quick, but I hope that's helpful to you, Mike. Thank you. Well, I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Same Pat time, same Pat channel, and I'll pray for you. Please pray for me. Now.